So why don't we jump straight into biblical counseling? Uh, I believe that's your topic, and I thought I would give you a message that uh, Denver said uh, might be suitable on a Corinthian case study. You know, we all uh, hear about individuals that go for counseling, but what happens when a whole church goes for counseling? It's 1 Corinthians is what happens. <laughs> and uh, in many ways, it's, we, we, we talk about what we believe about biblical counseling, but this follows on after that in terms of how we actually do biblical counseling and why we believe that should be in the local church. And uh, if ever there was a church that needed counseling, it was Corinth, if you know 1 Corinthians. We're going to camp in chapter 6, and then I would welcome some questions from you afterwards. Denver said we should normally end at sort of like 9.50, is that it? Yeah, 10 to 10, yeah. And so let me see what I can do until about 9.45, and then maybe, uh, and, and feel free to jump in, because my understanding is this is more like a classroom setting, and uh, I have a, a great love for biblical counseling. My spiritual father and mentor in biblical counseling in many ways is actually uh, probably nearing the end of his life. I'm not, not sure if you're aware in Pretoria, but Dr. Mack is very weak and frail. And uh, we've been speaking about even just trying to get up there again. Matt Florine and I did see him um, in the hospital a couple of months ago. But uh, that illustrates what a debt I owe to biblical counseling. And I did my bachelor's in Ma master's university in biblical counseling under Dr. Mack and uh, my wife, uh, my dear wife, Michelle, is uh, her dad was one of the founders of NANC before it was ACBC, the Nuthetica Counseling, and uh, was on the board for about 30 years. And so the Lord made sure I could not escape biblical counseling. It has surrounded my life uh, with the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. And so I'm so glad. And, and when Antioch began in 2009 in Johannesburg, we began with a course like this on uh, Wednesday nights for many months on biblical counseling. So there's a few things that are more foundational. And um, in fact, this message I originally did, uh, or once I did it with our people a few years ago, I, obviously I'd preached through 1 Corinthians and it was the fruit of that. But uh, I went back to it a few years ago. We've had so many new people like you, uh, which is so encouraging. But I did this message after, as elders, one of the first position papers that we presented, and I just sent it to Denver. If you want to share it, it's on our website at antiochbiblechurch.org.za. Under the About Us section is elders' position papers, and one of the first ones we did was on biblical counseling and uh, in contrast to psychology. And so it was something we actually adapted from another uh, strong biblical counseling church in the States, and it basically laid out what we believe um, uh, three main convictions. God's Word should be the counseling authority for Christians helping people with broken lives. The second conviction uh, that we spell out is a part of that counseling is a part of the basic discipling ministry of the local church. And then third, uh, and that's spelled out, third, God's people can and should be able to counsel effectively. Uh, and then specifically we mentioned 1 Corinthians 6, which we're about to go through now. And then four foundational counseling questions. What's the goal? How does change happen? Uh, what, is, what is the hope we have in the storms of life? That'll be the sermon coming later this morning in part two tonight in Everglen. And then the fourth question, is there a difference between biblical counseling and psychology? And so anyway, that position paper is on our church website because like you, we knew this is a defining feature of your church. And if you don't unify around this now, you'll divide over it later. It's that simple. If you want a thin, so-called gospel-centered unity that avoids the issue of secular psychology and our hyper-psychologized society 
and you want a church and leaders who don't take a clear stand on biblical counseling, you're inviting division. You're asking for trouble sooner or later. So it is an act of integrity. It's a mark of honesty and doctrinal clarity that your church says defines now where you stand on biblical counseling. And I believe it's a shallow veneer. It's a false unity for churches to dodge and avoid that issue uh, until later, as I'm sure some of you have seen by painful experience. And so praise God for your elders and your leaders. They want a thick unity, not a thin unity uh, around something that is secondary. We're not saying it's, uh, you know, people are going to hell if they believe in Christian psychology or integrationism. Their kids and grandkids might, to be frank. Uh, it, it sets you in a direction that's very dangerous. Uh, but no, it's a secondary doctrine. These are matters of uh, differences among Christians. But if you want strong unity in your church, uh, I commend you for studying biblical counseling and clarifying your position uh, against integrationism, against uh, uh, psych- all forms of psychology, and for uh, gladly and passionately for biblical, truly biblical and aesthetic counseling. But um, if there's ever a church that needed it, it was Corinth. I mean, if you know the first few chapters that set the tone for uh, uh, the epistle, 1 Corinthians, it was divisions, it was pride going on, right? There was jealousy, there was quarreling. I mean, this was one messed up church, right? Uh, Our church tried to name ourselves after one of the best churches and a model in the New Testament, Antioch. If you want the ultimate name not to give your church, which is ironic because in some of the certain cultural areas of inner city parts of America, it's very common to call uh, uh, it's not that uncommon to uh, hear about a Corinth Baptist Church. <laughs> Why? Why? Why would you choose that name? <laughs> it's like naming your daughter Jezebel or something. <laughs> okay, I'll stop. But um, uh, 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 the, it's it's they were dealing with the confusion about gender roles, uh, abuse of liberty, uh, uh, conflict at the Lord's Supper, right? Fighting over spiritual gifts. Uh, denying the resurrection, a conflict over eschatology and times. But specifically, I want us to look here at chapter 6 and the lawsuits that were afflicting the church at Corinth. And this was not unlike, sadly, what has happened in my homeland, though we've been here for 25 years now, but uh, America is notoriously litigious and is a... Uh, a society that is drowning in lawsuits. My son is a candidate attorney now at, at, in uh, Santon, and uh, all our kids are born and raised in South Africa. We call them American Africans. And um, uh, Evan is, was with one of my uncles back in Texas a couple of years ago, and he heard that my son, our oldest boy, wanted to go into law. And he said, promise me one thing, boy, you won't be an ambulance chaser. And I hadn't heard that phrase in South Africa, but I knew immediately what he meant. You know, lawyers who are just looking for, uh, you know, just looking to create a, a case and just looking to make money off of uh, uh, false accusations and, and petty uh, conflicts. And it, that's not unlike Paul's day in Greek society. It was a favorite pastime, suing one another. It become a, a way of life. They, they thought about adding litigation as another sport in the Olympics. Uh, you know, for the right price, you could get whatever verdict uh, you, you wanted. Everyone had caught litigation uh, fever. We're told in the States there's a lawsuit every 30 seconds. Can you believe that? It's a blight. It's a stigma when a society becomes so hungry for litigation. But there's something even more shameful and more shocking when it happens in the church, right? Uh, We expect an angry and a greedy world to sue one another, don't we? 
but to see God's people suing one another. This is a cause, as Paul speaks, for mourning and godly sorrow. And we look around today, Christian couples suing one another over divorce settlements, pastors suing churches over salary and and leave disputes, churches suing pastors over contractual issues, leaders suing one another over church building projects and defamation or breach of confidence, Uh, uh, members suing one another over labor laws and use of IP, uh, intellectual intellectual property, uh, borrowed cars, damaged property, land disputes, uh, building agreements, lapse deadlines, employment contracts. You're going to hear in chapter 6 Paul's sense of astonishment and, and dismay. Worldliness was enemy number one in the Corinthian church. Remember, the problem wasn't that uh, the, the problem was that there was too little of God's church in Corinth, and there was too much of Corinth in God's church. <laughs> and it was evidenced in these kind of ethical, practical, moral issues as are so typically troubling the church then and now. So let me read the text and pray for us and then draw out some key principles. And feel free if you have a question as we go or, uh, or at the end, hopefully we can take a few minutes. 1 Corinthians 6 from verse 1 through verse 11. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Gracious Father, thank you for these dear saints and this sweet opportunity Uh, though uh, a a thorny issue. And thank you for their commitment to biblical counseling, for the foundations laid by Pastor Mark, and for the faithful leadership of Denver and the elders. And we pray that uh, this would be a time to further encourage them with the Corinthian model of Paul and his biblical counseling of the whole church and his expectation of the mutual counseling that the church should do towards one another and how they would handle their problems in a distinctly different way from our litigious and greedy and hateful world. Because of the gospel, because we've been bought with a price, we're not our own. And uh, the tomb is empty, Jesus is alive, the Bible is true, the gospel is real, and it should make a difference where the tacky hits the tar in the thorny issues of our lives uh, by the power of your Spirit. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. So this message, this uh, uh, little uh, talk on biblical counseling, uh, I would uh, I, I'd summarize, as I said, is, is a Corinthian case study in how to do biblical counseling, uh, fleshing out the positions that we hold, the principles that we hold, as I mentioned. And uh, the outline is quite simple. Three laws against lawsuits in the church. Three laws against lawsuits in the church. 
so that our peacemaking shows us to be heirs of God's kingdom, which is where Paul ends and where we seek to end in this text. If we're going to prove that we are real believers, if we're going to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, if we're going to bring forth a fruit in keeping with repentance, as Scripture says, if we're going to show that we are Christ followers and real disciples, if our peacemaking is going to evidence that we are heirs of God's kingdom, then we need to understand these three laws against lawsuits in the church. The first is resolve, the second is realize, and the third is remember. Resolve, realize, and remember. First, number verses 1 to 6. Number one, resolve it inside the church, not outside. Resolve it inside the church, not outside. There's a, a link here with the previous chapter. The, uh, the logic seems to be, if we're not to judge outsiders, then neither should we ask outsiders to judge us. And look at verse 1 in the text, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous, not before the saints? The gall, the audacity, thinking you can sue one another before pagan magistrates. You are God's holy ones, hagioi, the saints, right? You ought to be the last ones airing out your dirty laundry for the world to see. I know churches, especially in these last few years, in COVID and because of lockdowns, I'm afraid it even affected our church where someone wanted to uh, take other believers to, to court because the church was gathering. What a shame. What a disgrace to the name of Christ. The unrighteous here is simply another word for unbelievers as we'll see down in verse 6 as a synonym, a parallel verse. Now, what kind of cases were they bringing against one another? Let's be clear. Paul's not undoing Romans 13, as some of you should be thinking. We're whole Bible Christians, right? The analogy of faith, how does Scripture interpret Scripture? It will never contradict itself. And so Paul is not contradicting what he himself wrote back in Romans 13. It's clearly saying God has established civil law for the protection of all people, and civil authorities do not bear the... Sword in vain, right? Christians are not exempt from legal penalties. So please don't misunderstand me. But does that mean that the offended Christian who is a victim must always press charges? We'll come later to this in the passage. But it seems in Corinth, the kind of cases Paul has in mind, if you look at the language he uses, verse 1, it's a kind of dispute or a grievance against one another. Verse 3 and 4, it's things of this life. Verse 7 and 8, it's being defrauded. In other words, someone was getting cheated. Someone else had been robbed. It doesn't sound like criminal activity, in other words. It, it sounds like disputes about property rights, breaches of contract, uh, damages, fraud. Perhaps uh, we might say, to, we might find a, an analogy today with a, a dispute over a labola or a, a dowry payment, right? And, and a lot of it seemed to be fueled by covetousness and greed, which has come up in chapter 5 and also down in in chapter 6, verse 10. Ah, you're wondering, okay, Tim, how about a believer and an unbeliever entangled in a legal dispute, as I'm sure some of you have faced? I'll tell you exactly what 1 Corinthians 6 has to say about that. Nothing. (laughs) That's not what the text is about. And Scripture does not forbid us from going to court against an unbeliever if it is for righteous and godly motives including a former believer properly disciplined in a Matthew 18 practicing church who is now recognized as an unbeliever. That's why it's so important, isn't it, for a church to practice church discipline. 
But even then, how we treat an enemy should be profoundly different than the world, right? Love your enemy. Turn the other cheek. Treat others the way you'd want to be treated, as our Lord taught. As Paul and Peter would teach in Romans 12 and 1 Peter 2 and elsewhere, leave vengeance to the Lord. Do not take justice into our own hands or become bitter. Overcome evil with good. Now, was this idea here in uh, 1 Corinthians 6 of God's people counseling one another and sorting out their differences uh, instead of going to the world? Was this idea new for Paul? Was this some post-Pentecost, apostolic, uh, newly Christian idea, some mystery long hidden now revealed? Not exactly. It was God's design for Israel, remember? Exodus 18, Moses appoints godly judges to help him with handling disputes among the saints. Deuteronomy 16 and 17, further directions for the judges in Israel. They had priests, they had elders, they had kings as well to govern and minister justice. For centuries after Moses, Jews had to settle their disputes privately or in a synagogue court rather than outsourcing it to the Canaanites or the Babylonians. That was blasphemy, you could say. It'd be, it'd be saying that God was incapable, His law was unable, His word was insufficient to lead and guide His people. That God had left His people without enough wisdom, without answers, without adequate resources to serve Him in this world. It's exactly why we believe in biblical counseling, right? But the Corinthian church had forgotten all of this. Keep reading, verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? What? Did we read that correctly? <laughs> judge the world? I mean, where does it say that in the Bible? Christians will judge the world. Well, it says it right here, <laughs> uh, for starters. And it must have been something Paul taught them before, since he says you should have known it. So how about Daniel 7? God's saints will take possession of the kingdom. How about Jesus in the Gospels telling his disciples they would one day head up this whole earthly rule by sitting on 12 thrones and judging the tribes of Israel? It's another reason why your church and your leaders, I know, care about eschatology and also want to unify around uh, premillennial conviction and so forth. And speaking of the millennium, book of Revelation, the Apostle John speaks about reigning with Christ we will for a thousand years, and that means we'll share in his authority over the nations, and judgment will be given to the saints. Revelation 2, Revelation 3, Revelation 20, Revelation 22, 2 Timothy chapter 2. The very thing Paul tells us not to do now, judging outsiders, we will be required to do on that day when Jesus returns, right? Imagine, brothers and sisters, us, the church, will go from being right now this sidelined, persecuted, disregarded, often ridiculed minority to being installed by Christ as the ruling party, no election necessary. What a reversal. What a complete promotion, right? We need to let this sink in as Christians, that every tribe and tongue, all the Zulus, all the Kosas, all the Americaners and the Afrikaners, and, some, and, and the Inglesmen thrown in, in between. Well, we'll have their day in court before Judge Jesus and standing next to Jesus as his vice judges will be Living Hope Bible Church and Antioch Bible Church and Christians. 
Read the text. Verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? And it must be by the same standard, the Word of God. What other standard is available? His infallible scriptures, His book, His law, based on His character. Why then can we not use His Word now in this life to, to sort out our differences, to resolve our conflicts in a godly way? And notice, it, Paul, in other words, how can you not sit on the smallest tribunals, deal with trivial matters amongst yourselves, if you are preparing to put the planet on trial one day? Get ready. Now's the rehearsal. Live this day in light of that day, right? Verse 3, keep reading. Or do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Probably fallen, evil angels. Second Peter, Jude, speak about how they will face God's judgment one day. <laughs> you and me, ordinary, fallen, fallible saints, imperfect, struggling Christians, will deliver the final verdict to demons. It's maybe one of the only times from the pulpit the preacher gets to say, Christians, we're going to look the demons in the eye in the name of Jesus, especially in our non-charismatic churches where we strongly discourage a lot of that ridiculous language. But based on this text, we will, on that day, not this day, on that day, under Christ's authority, there's a sense in which we'll look the very fallen angels and the demons themselves in the eye and say, go to hell. To hell you go. Ghastly creatures who've caused such ruin and destruction in this world, destroyed lives, broken marriages, uh, ruined families, held whole uh, societies and cultures and, and, and nations in fear and guilt. We will get to pronounce final justice with a pure and righteous anger. Should that not be a purifying hope? Should that not be a prospect that dip makes a difference now in how we handle our relationships? <laughs> Imagine you live in Lesotho, for example, and the, the, the king of Lesotho, sorry, I don't know his exact name. Does anybody know? Okay, just, oh, king. <laughs> he summons you into his courts for a very, very important case that he's judging. He asks to consult you. He asks that you would sit at his right hand for a major case coming up in a very public setting to adjudicate this critical matter in the life of the whole kingdom of Lesotho. And while getting ready for this appointment, the way you dress, the way you drive, the way you speak to your family, all is going to be influenced by this honorable, dignified role that you have been assigned. That's what Paul's saying here. Don't you realize what God has the responsibility you have in the future, that should affect the way you handle conflicts and counsel one another in the present. Verse 4, keep reading. So if you have law courts dealing with matters in the, of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? It, sarcastically. <laughs> From a Christian perspective, in God's eyes, Mr. Secular Judge, Mr. Attorney, uh, Mr. Magistrate, I've learned in South Africa recently because, by the way, our, there are churches like Grace Community and Antioch and a few others that have launched a case for religious liberty based on the South African Constitution, and it made it to the Supreme Court of Appeals in Bloemfontein. Pray, there's some who say there's maybe a, like a 1% chance we could even get it to constitutional court for the sake of religious freedom in a land that has this in our Constitution. But as we've watched the trial unfold with these Christian lawyers doing it pro 
what do you call that for free? Pro bono, yeah, pro deo as well. Uh, as we've watched them, you, you know this better than um, an American like me, but each court you address them differently. So like at the high court, it's, uh, I think, what, my lord, and then at the Supreme Court, it's my, what's the other one? You know, but anyways, all, you got to know the right, the right title, right? to the right judge. And yet Paul says, in heaven's eyes, they're of little accounts, right? Verse 5, keep reading. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? Ouch! These Corinthians were so puffed up. If you know chapter 3 and 4, I thought they were so wise. By the way, if you want to know a good tool in certain uh, teaching and biblical counseling, and let's start with Christian parenting for that matter, uh, in nine verses here, in the first nine verses, Paul has ten rhetorical questions. It's a barrage of humbling interrogation. Be careful how you use those questions. But, but uh, Paul used them very effectively here, right? Shame on you. You ought to be God's alternative in a cold, cruel world. I say this to your shame. There's not one wise man among you able to decide, verse 5, between his brethren, verse 6. If a brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers... Imagine your family going to the neighbors and saying, you know what, I'm sorry to bother you, but our family is fighting about what movie or game to play tonight, so we thought we'd ask you to help us. Pardon me? Sort yourselves out. <laughs> and that's what the church is, is doing before secular courts. It's, it's making a spectacle, becoming a, a, a laughingstock. What happened to this holy fear, in other words? Uh, in the church today, whether it's divorce or so many other areas where we're killing our evangelistic in- impact. We have all these great programs, but we don't practice biblical counseling. And we wonder why our evangelistic methods aren't reaping more results. First, we must get our house in order. Redeem spirit and dwell people. Is there not one wise person to arbitrate a, a conflict? And it all goes back to the opening Chapters of 1 Corinthians, especially the first three or four chapters, you could say, and, and, and starting with the, the, the famous first and second chapter, it, it's, it's when we depart from the wisdom of a cross-centered heart and life and church, a self-denying humility that knows how to resolve conflicts, a determination to preach Christ and Him crucified, right? in the power of the Spirit, to boast only in the Lord and not in one another. That's the path to peacemaking, is it not? And this, this also then applies to the folly of, of Christians consulting psychologists and therapists with problems that the Word of God can solve and the people of God should be helping one another with instead of running off to the world, right? May the Lord make us more of these kinds of churches, Right? Okay, number two and three, I'll just do briefly. First of all, resolve it inside and not outside the church. And then secondly, verse seven and eight, realize that nobody wins if you go outside. Realize that nobody wins if you go outside. This is the only way for a Christian to win a lawsuit with one another, Paul says, verse seven. Actually, then it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? I heard a heartbreaking story recently about a broken home, parents that had ended the marriage, and they have an eight-year-old boy, and he stays with mom, and dad gets him for the weekend, 
and he brings him back home to mom, and he hadn't even been able to drop off his boy's luggage yet and say goodbye in those terrible, awkward drop-offs on Sunday afternoon before the eight-year-old boy grabbed a picture album from three years ago where the whole family was together on holiday, and he starts hugging it and kissing the photo album in front of both parents. Shame on you if they are both Christians and they could not make it work. Marriage done God's way works every time. That's what we say in our church, unashamedly and unapologetically. If both members are submitted to the Lordship of Christ, it can and will and must succeed. Paul says, it's a defeat for you. Why not be wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Who is more wrong? Who is more defrauded? Who is more unjustly treated than the Savior whose name we bear? As Christians, right? If God could strengthen him, he can strengthen us through him who indwells us, right? We're back to the way of the cross, the way of true wisdom, what the world calls folly. God's true power, what the world calls weakness. God's true victory, what the world calls defeat. The whole theme of 1 Corinthians, cross-centered living, responding to mistreatment, dying to self, loving one another, the Calvary mindset, my life for yours, my rights for yours, giving up my complaint for the sake of Christian witness, giving up my lawsuit out of love for you, out of greater concern for the reputation of the church and the gospel, refusing to press charges where possible for the sake of God's reputation. The law courts are about protecting your rights. The gospel is about the surrender of your rights, seeking the good of others. The world worships litigation. The gospel is all about reconciliation, right? We march to the beat of a different drum. Verse 8. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Learn from Abraham and Lot. He gives Lot the better land that there be no strife between us as brothers, he says. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. How much more this side of the cross, this side of Pentecost, right? That's why biblical peacemaking in our churches is so important. Probably your church like ours uh, uh, requires all members to consent that they will make no appeal to secular courts for disputes in the church. That we're gonna, we love the peacemakers pledge. Ken Sandy, that material, the four G's. We we talk about that often. Number three, resolve it inside, not outside the church. Number two, resolve. Excuse me. One is resolve it inside, not outside. The second is realize that nobody wins if you go outside. And the third point, very briefly though wonderfully and gloriously, verse 9 through 11, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Verses 9 through 11. Look at the text here, just briefly in closing, and then we'll see any questions that you have. I'm sure you, you will on such a, a hot topic and one that does require a lot of wisdom in how we apply it in our own churches and our own contexts. Verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, I thought one saved, always saved. Yeah, but show you're saved. The Bible also teaches, if saved, always saved. Work out your salvation. Show that you are a part of the righteous, the the converted, the born again, not the unsaved and the unrighteous. Show your justification by your sanctification, right? Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, right? Lord, Lord, look what we've done in your name. And he will say, I never knew you, right? The heart is deceitful above 
all else. Remember who you are and notice the, the emphasis here in light of who you were. In light of who you were. Do not be deceived, verse 9 goes on. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor, 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 nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, verse 10, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Each of these could be a whole uh, counseling lecture or uh, a series of lectures in itself, right? The roll call of the damned, you could say. Profiles of false converts, those who are doomed to Hades unless they repent and turn to Christ. Then he ends verse 11, one of the sweetest verses in all the Bible. A beautiful picture into the pews at Corinth. One of the most hope-filled verses in all of the Bible, right? The makeup of this young congregation. Verse 11, such are? Oh, shame, you're an ex this, you're an ex uh, that, you're, an, you're a recovering whatever. No, such were some of you. I mean, if you unpack that for a minute, think about it. Such were some of you. You uh, let's get real specific, right? Once fornicators, now sexually pure, either as celibate singles or happily married. Once idolaters, now true worshippers of the one true living God. Once adulterers, now faithful spouses. Once effeminate, now masculine, manly, embracing your God-given gender as a man. Boy, does that apply today? Seen what Andy Stanley has done last week? One of the most influential churches in America. I don't know about Cape Town, but definitely his shadow walks uh, around Gauteng and his influence condoning this so-called gay Christianity. Once homosexuals, now sexually pure, affirming God's natural heterosexual design, either in marriage or singleness or godly celibacy. Once thieves, in other words, now hardworking, generous, as Scripture tells us. Once covetous, now content, you think of the biblical put off and put on. Once drunkards, I'm just going down the list here. Now sober, self-controlled. Once revilers, now encouragers with edifying speech. Once swindlers, that was our first discipline case at Antioch uh, 13 or so years ago. A lady that was swindling. Now these people were honest, upright in all their financial dealings. Nothing excites you more about biblical counseling than this, right? And how? How did this happen, right? He says in verse 11, because you were washed. Clean, right? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The filth, the muck of Corinth had been wiped clean. They'd been bathed in the blood of Christ. We celebrate that every time we come to the Lord's table, right? You've been washed. You've been sanctified. Probably positional sanctification in view here. Set apart, consecrated. You've been justified. Notice each time, but you were sanctified. But you were justified. First of all, but you were washed. Paul's not concerned about the order here. Conversion is such a a radical event. It can be viewed from so many different angles. And how does it happen? He says, in the name of Christ, under His sovereign authority and power, right? His righteousness in place of my sin. In the name of Christ and in the Spirit of our God, the Spirit who works the washing of regeneration, who renews us, as Scripture says. 
We doubt the worst pagan and the most immoral person cannot be changed. We forget our own conversion. And we put Jesus back in the tomb, as it were. And we might as well close shop and go home. If he is not in the transforming business, if you think some sinners are unsavable, you've forgotten the depths out of which he's lifted you. And the heights to which he has raised you, right? Only God can untwist the most twisted lives, clean up the dirtiest, purify the most perverted, heal the most broken. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Praise God for the power of his gospel. Your past doesn't need to define you as much as it is still a reality that you must be sobered by and and humbled by, right? Paul is saying, if we're destined to judge the world and angels, can we not settle our own disputes without consulting the unrighteous, unwashed, unsanctified, unjustified world? We should be evangelizing them, not hiring them as our lawyers. Instead of suing one another, we should be pursuing peace together that the world may know we are Christians by our love for one another. Any questions? In closing, please, I know that's more of a sermon than a a Sunday school lesson. But uh, as, a, as a visiting preacher, I guess I abused my liberties. Anyone, please feel free. Yes, Peter, Uncle Peter, thank you. Bim, so one point uh, that you made, and it's your know, last reference to you uh, and the church enter dealing with a case of swindling, and your reference to Exodus and Deuteronomy. In those cases, whenever there was a fault to be corrected, there was always restitution. How does the church work through that? Because uh, do we have a guideline for restitution? When somebody has done something wrong to me, uh, forgiveness is taking place, but what about restitution of defrauding? If they repent. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So this lady uh, at Antioch in her first year never repented and said she had an eye operation, wore a lovely little patch, put on a story. We had, you have to do your homework as leaders, right? You have to research it, get your facts in order. It turns out no eye operation. I'm not sure there was any proof even of an eye condition, but talk to hospitals, talk to uh, uh, surgeons. The money was never used for that purpose. And there was enough other cases and refusal to repent. But if someone has repented, then absolutely. There ought to be Second Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, sufficient is, is a punishment for such a one. Embrace them, love them, welcome them, yeah. pay back, you know. I don't think the new covenant dictates, especially, I would think, sure, at least double, if you can, what you owe, you know. I mean, Zac- Zac- Zacchaeus was, yes, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, double and more. Yeah, uh, double and more. I'll ask a question, but, people. Yeah, yeah. You know, these things are not always easy to resolve, and there are little things that when it's deal with it's a practical Yeah, matter. and it starts in the home, right? You know, restitution. Okay, our kids, I mean, we have five, and, and three are, are, are married and gone now, and but we would always teach them, you know, make muffins, you know, uh, 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 buy a gift, you know, make restitution, that biblical principle. To, to, yeah, not just talk is cheap. Yes, ask forgiveness, but also show restitution to restore the relationship to be better than it was before and to rebuild trust, right? Yeah, trust is granted and trust is earned biblically. Yeah, any other last question? I think we have one minute. Um, obviously, your elders, your leaders can apply these things in your you know, case by case as well. Yes, um, sir. Could you just give some clarity? Uh, I would assume that there are certain matters where the right thing to do would be to hand it over to the, the civil authorities. Yep, like I said, Roman so 13. Yeah. The difference between like a criminal case versus civil matters. That would be one. Yeah, it doesn't mean it's wrong to ever... It, I mean, our 
case for religious liberty is not a criminal case. Um, and it was a shock for people to see that a church like Grace Community or other churches like ours around the world, uh, some faithful brothers have done this in New Zealand against lockdowns and for the right of religions together, which, by the way, uh, other religions will benefit from as well. And uh, that's okay. The biggest defender of religious freedom in history has been Christianity because we don't need coercion by the sword. We believe in persuasion through the gospel. And so if we win a constitutional case so that Muslims can also gather, great, more chance to go evangelize them. You know, because if they get locked down, so do we. And we lose religious freedom. So that's not a criminal case. So yeah, but I, I think the elders again and godly counsel would say, all right, this has reached a point where, uh, because remember the interpersonal commands of Jesus loving your enemy doesn't cancel the judicial role of the government. And so you could personally say, I'm kind and loving, I'm not bitter, but for the sake of justice, for the sake of the neighborhood, the community, whatever, this needs legal action. But it's the attitude, right, in which you go about it. But there might be other times where the elders or godly counsel would say, you know, brother, I'm not sure that's worth it. I think the more Christian thing would be to do, if this is more at a personal level for you, wherever possible, to turn the other cheek, drop it, leave it. So that, that is, that's why I said that's going to be case by case. Yeah. No one should be more passionate about justice than Christians. Real justice, not social justice. Right. All right. Shall I pray for us? Okay. Father, these are sticky matters. We do need much wisdom case by case. We live in an age that is so perverted and uh, uh, confused about justice. Uh, and yet we know that uh, mercy triumphs. And uh, Lord, we pray that uh, we would, uh, most of all, in the church, in our love for one another, in our counseling one another, in our applying of your word to every sticky, thorny issue like conflict resolution, like uh, disputes, that we would demonstrate the authority of Christ, the sufficiency of the gospel, the power of your word to offer superior solutions that the world knows not because they do not know our Savior. In his risen name we pray. Amen.